Hello, my name's Charlotte Watts. This podcast was recorded at one of my live events, so either at a workshop, retreat or course that I was running. You can see details of these at my website, charlottewattshealth.com or join my Facebook group, Charlotte Watts Calm. I hope it's helpful to you. Okay, so the question is along timing of meals and fasting. So I'm going to put that in the opposite way round. So fasting and particularly intermittent fasting. So this is fasting that's not necessarily over large swathes of time, um, but it might be, say, missing a meal or having a day's fasting every so often. Um, It can be even a fasting that involves having a very small amount of calories, like 500 a day. It came to popularity, let's say, through 5-2 diet, where there was those two days a week where you would fast it is two days a week you would fast and then five days eating normally air quotes whatever that means um which is kind of part of the issue with it i guess part of that is well there's several things around that one is to actually take decision making around food off the table is a blessed relief to many people which is why they will go to regimes and lists of being told what to eat and when to eat it Um, which can be helpful in terms of a framework and boundaries and and particularly in the beginning when you might be taking someone away from sugar addiction or binge cycles. But ultimately what it doesn't do is self-educate. It doesn't start to create uh, a listening and responding relationship with food. So ultimately we would eat when we need to eat and we'd eat the amount we need to eat when we need to eat it. But our system we're institutionalized our system is based around these three meals a day which is fairly modern so like 400 years old in in europe that's been happening i mean i know more about english history in this but medieval times people would have breakfast at 11 and then something they called oh various names lunch dinner supper whatever (laughs) about four o'clock and that would be it but breakfast was invented added in when people were um working more and more in towns so that that's that kind of shifted. And we do tend to have clock we have clock genes where we tend to get used to having the same thing at the same time. So if you have some sugar at four o'clock every day, you're gonna expect and want some sugar at four o'clock every day. And that comes in pretty quickly. That said, it can be unraveled pretty quickly as well. So you might go through three, you know, two couple of days where you don't have it and it's horrible. You crave, but ultimately you can wean off that. Then, like I said before, we'd notice if there's a binging afterwards and it's like, okay, there's really something needs to be supported here to not kind of rebound back into that. But intermittent fasting is, what it does is support what's called ketogenesis. So it it is flipping over. Once we've used up all of the available carbohydrates we have for fuel, whether that's in the bloodstream from food that's been eaten quite recently or whether that is stored as uh, glycogen in muscles or liver, once we've depleted those stores, so we've gone over a certain amount of time, then we can we move to fat as our main fuel substrate. So once you've fasted long enough, and we do this every night, we go into ketogenesis you know, in the early hours of the morning, then you start to burn fat as fuel. 
And the more you go into that, the more it switches on your metabolism to move into that mode. And I mean, the, the original ketogenic diet was called that, proposed, purported as that in the 30s in, uh, for, for epilepsy, which it's, it's still given out as the, the effective diet for, for epilepsy. It's a really good thing to, I mean, what, I, what personally has happened to me in my life is I've moved from sugar addiction to being quite regimented around meals because I had such a raging appetite from stress and trauma stuff and that need to fuel up because being in survival mode is fuel up. You're going to need to have energy to run or fight and you have that constant and once you can start to bring that down, then ultimately, you know, we should be able to regulate our blood sugar over more than three to four hours. We should be able to eat for not put something in our mouths for five hours. A lot of that for people is around panic, but a lot of people will also have this highs and lows of blood sugar where they might have a crash and, and have a low blood sugar hypoglycemia and need something to bring up. But we you know, I work with people to regulate that. But once people get to the point where they can intermittently fast, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that for a client who was adrenally fatigued or close to burnout, uh, could, couldn't regulate blood sugar, then it starts to become something that's really useful and it starts to also help gather back a relationship with hunger because most people in the West don't really have an actual relationship with hunger. We feel hungry, it's a bit uncomfortable, we put something in to stop the discomfort because we're not used to being uncomfortable. We don't like it. We go, it's bad. Oh, no, it's terrible. Stop it. Was actually, And it's the same kind of emotionally as well. We're kind of not used to having, or we feel this, the disquiet of thought, or we feel the disquiet of something physical, or a scratch in our leg, and it's like, no, terrible. There's a, there's a, quite a, a, a tendency to cat- catastrophizing. And actually being with hunger, Mexico, having a mindful relationship with hunger. And hung, true hunger is very different to having a blood sugar crash. It is not, I must have food now, and it's a you know, really intolerant, immediate thing. It's a slow burn. Ooh, I feel hungry. I have the space, the reflective space to be able to choose something. It feels a bit, I feel a bit empty. It's good to feel empty. It's good to be with a feeling of emptiness. A lot of people don't like a feeling of emptiness. And we're used to a lot of stuff, a lot of acquisition, a lot of having stuff. Um, so a lot of self-medicating can not be about not feeling empty. That, I must say, and there's really interesting research around this, that bowls of soup relieve feelings of loneliness and emptiness. So actually, when we turn to a diet that's about bowls of soup and stew again, that can actually really help us be with that sense of empty that can be more uh, a whole emotional language, not just around actual absence of something. So I think it's a really interesting thing to play with. And it's it's often one of the really sticking points of me working with people is often they feel they have to eat at times that they don't feel are natural for them to eat. Or that they're having to snack to get themselves between um, one meal to the, to another so, for instance, they work till six o'clock, then they've got to get a commute home. And actually, they'd really like to be eating dinner at five o'clock and then nothing else for the rest of the evening. Um, but it's just not set up like that. So they end up having lunch, something around four o'clock, which is when we crave something sugary. And then maybe dinner that actually feels too late for them. 
or they might just go into a kind of making up for lost time, as it were, by really been near taking things in and binging at night. I basically arranged my life around eating when I want, when I actually feel hungry and getting out into some bushes, <laughs> because I see that as the most necessary thing for me. The other thing I want to mention in that, which is really, really key, is the modern obsession with snacking is problematic. This oral fixation of continually putting things in our mouth, always having something with us just in case, which I completely understand because I I used to carry around oceans of food in my bag just in case. And I really don't anymore because I'm okay with being hungry and even like, oh, I'm not getting something. But that's been a long process for me. If we keep stuffing things in the top end, we have to ask the digestive process to start again each time. And it's a process of about 40 hours. So it's not, it's more than 24 hours, which is odd timing, I think. And digestion is a massively energy rich process. So every time you put something on top again, you're starting that 40 hour process over and over again. And rarely giving your gut any time when there's nothing in it, which is when it needs to heal cells and when it needs gut motility to start working. Gut motility is something that's really important. There's a huge, I mean, Sally might um, recognise this one. It's like SIBO is the new candida in the nutrition world, where small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is where bacteria from the colon floods up into the intestine. And we have a natural counter to that, which is to keep gut motility flowing downwards, mouth to anus, so that any bacteria that tends to go up back the wrong way, just gets washed down again. When we continually eat, that gut motility tends to get hampered and it can be part of parcel of, of a, a bloating cycle as well. So you need gaps between eating, at least three to four hours, to allow gut motility to, to work and for our, our uh, microbiome and our whole gut environment to be really healthy. So that's, that's also something that we have to have that constant decision-making around because... You know, there's a billion, 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 billion dollar in snack industries. And everywhere you go, someone else is creating a new healthy snack around this, that and the other. And a lot of the nutrition advice that people get is from personal trainers who are really taught. To, I mean, there's a lot of them out there who really don't do this because there's a lot, of, a lot of intelligent nutritional knowledge. But a lot of them are also in the old school path of eat little and often because it's good for blood sugar balance. And actually... Eat, being told to eat little and often is often a, then a, a conditioning, a patterning that people then spend, have to spend years getting out of again. And it gets just this oral fixation with stuffing, you know, putting things in, putting things in. And a lot of people do that to numb. It becomes another self-medication. Full, that, full, full circle. Does that include tea with milk in it? Is that something that would set the process off because it's milk? Well, it is a liquid. It's a very good question because it, I mean, but technically milk is a solid in the way that technically blood is a solid because uh, it's somewhere between, it's the kind, in the kind of bound water uh, <laughs> force of things. I mean, yes, we need to have energy to break it down so that it's an energetic process, but there does, there needs to be less of a physical process involved in it. So you can get really, you know, nitpicky around this stuff I wouldn't worry too much about that 
because I can go quite happily go five hours between meals, but I'm you know, fancy a cup or, you know, nap period. Yeah, and that's yeah. about a whole different bunch of things. That's loads of things. I mean, you know, tea in and of itself is soothing. A bowl of warm stuff is soothing, but tea in and of itself has L-theanine in it. It, it. It's a parasympathetic effect, whether it has caffeine or not, it still does. I'm always looking at research around tea because it's fascinating. There's a, a, a research study done fairly recently. So what they did is they gave pretty good populace as well. They gave two bunches of people a, a task to do that was stressful. And by that I meant that it was a difficult intellectual task that didn't really work out well. It didn't make sense. That you know, it didn't. People couldn't work. It just was like it was irritating and stressful. People couldn't easily get to the end of it. I'm not even sure that you were that there was an end to it. So they kind of pissed people off a bit with this task. And then they gave one half a glass of water afterwards, and the other half a cup of tea afterwards. And then they they both measured stress hormones before and after. So everyone's stress hormones were um, heightened after the task. The ones who were given the glass of water afterwards, stress hormones rose even more after being given the glass of water. The ones given the tea went down. And then in the reporting, which is always the interesting thing, in the reporting afterwards, the people who were given the tea said that one of the reasons they felt that the tea calmed them down is because the lab assistant offered to make them a cup of tea. And they said it was the social engagement of someone saying, would you like a cup of tea? And that was the thing that as well, that it's, it's, it's not just about, yeah, it's, it's not about just it's a warm bowl. It's not just about the fact there's healthy in in, but someone was caring for them. Someone saw they had a need. Well, you know, it was contrived, but hey-ho. <laughs> They're still conditioned for, you know... It's why it's a crisis response for yeah. people is let's yeah. stick the kettle on. Yeah. And it's good conditioning. Yeah. You know, it is, it is a, a cohesive thing. Especially, this is why I'm really keen for clients to have nice pottery. You know, do you have a mug that you like? No, I lived in a shared house where I think all the mugs are shit. <laughs> right. Go and buy yourself yeah. a beautiful mug that you like. Yeah. Uh, do you eat with cutlery that feels right for you? No, I live in a shared house or my, you know, no, I've just got old shit. <laughs> Go and buy yourself at least one knife and fork that you like. You know, I always eat in bowls. And to be honest, most of my family like to eat from plates. I don't really understand that, but I have a bowl. Um, because I like to eat in a bowl. It feels much more engaging for me. Um, I'm really picky about cutlery. So all of these things make a difference. Uh, hot lemon in the morning, is it good? Yes, lemon juice is collagenic, so it stimulates bile. So it gets the juices flowing very much it um it starts to it prompt stomach acid production as well this is why having lemon juice with meals in dressings like having apple cider vinegar um really does help to digest adding the ginger that helps as well yeah mm. yeah yeah and cinnamon do you think the lemon and the ginger helps for um, inflammation? Yeah, ginger has a very, very calmative effect on the gut wall. Yeah. yeah. 